takes more than using screen scraping libraries to automate your network and calling it an API to be a great network automation engineer. This is episode 9 of Network Automation Hangout, weekly audio discussion about network automation with the community. I'm your host Dmitry Figel and I don't feel guilty about plagiarizing intros from another audio shows. It's evil, man. That was an evil intro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Carl Montanari and, and I'm not going to plagiarize Dmitry because he might stab me. I am John. I'm the guy that speaks kind of fake English. Um, my name is IPV0 on YouTube and Twitter and all the things, and that's pretty much it. All right, and joining us also hey, today is Dave. Hello, Dave. Yeah. Hey, sorry for, for talking over there. I was keen and eager to, uh, to say hello. Uh, so, yeah, I'm David G. Um, blog at Dave.dev, previously known as IP Engineer. Um, and for my sins, I work over at Juniper uh, in the Cloud Data Center team. Perfect. Thank you for joining us today, Dave, and uh, to talk about one of the news that you shared with us today. All right, but before we jump into into that, uh, let's go around our virtual round table and see how everyone's doing. Carl, let's start with you. I've uh, been kind of busy, uh, lifey stuff, but um, also getting a little bit of work done on obviously scrappy things as per always. There's been some interesting... Um, couple interesting issues and, and pull requests and stuff lately, which has been cool, getting some kind of community involvement, which is dope. Um, and then I've been working on getting Scrapply CFG stuff kind of baked into Scrapply Go, because I think that would be really cool to add to Roman's tool commando. So that's kind of my, my next little adventure, I think. But uh, other than that, yeah, just kind of podding along. I'm nothing too super exciting. Once you finish Scrapply, what are you going to do next? Just make it in every language, I think. Isn't that? <laughs> okay. Rust is next, so then I don't know, like Fortran. Why not? Mm-hmm. JavaScript. Can can you do no. it directly from the browser? Probably. I don't see. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Sure. Why not? I mean, like the async telnet transport is just sockets and stuff. So I don't see why you couldn't do it in JavaScript. It'd be it'd be wild. You you heard <laughs> it on the stream. Carl is committing to creating JavaScript uh, scrapply. So. Perfect. Oh, Good luck. It. You can level up, Carl. Do it, on, do it as a React oh, module with hooks. You can do it. You have far too much faith. Well, Maybe we'll get there one day. Yeah. John, how are you today, sir? Yeah, I'm good. I can't wait to see um, Scrapply Java, Scrapply Assembly, and then finally, of course, Scrapply YAML, because that's going to be the best of all. Um, yeah, I've not done an awful lot, to be honest. I've kind of been chilling out this week, went to the gym, I've been watching the Euros, which is what us European people like to do to spend our time. And I've been doing some recording for CBT Nuggets. I'm starting a new course, which is pretty much a beginner's kind of Python course for people interested in network automation. Really trying to assume no knowledge of Python. Beforehand, if I taught some kind of Python knowledge, I would just assume that you knew what a loop was, you knew what dictionary was, so on and so forth. This is really as a beginner course, so it's a little bit of a change of speed for me to do something so entry, but it's also quite fun and also pretty challenging because you've got to realize about you make so many automatic assumptions when you're teaching because to you that's just so obvious and you really have to disentangle all that stuff and really just think from the bare bones basics. So it's quite challenging and quite fun. So really, that's all I'm doing. And yep, that's pretty much it. What about you, Dimitri? What's happening with you? Well, hold on, hold on. I cannot help myself but ask on Euro, are you cheering against England or no? You are a trouble starter, aren't you? 
<laughs> well, no, that's why I'm with the host, I guess. No, honestly, it's fine because I've actually got English family members. So if England win, it's actually quite all right with me. So you're trying to start something, but it's not going to work today. Ouch. Okay. And He's I also today, heard... man. He's being feisty. <laughs> that's what happens, man. It's like you know me the first day, Carl. John, and I also heard that you had an epic comeback on YouTube with some YouTube videos. Could you tell us a little bit more? What are you doing there? Yeah, it was a super epic comeback. Yeah, so for the longest time, I wanted to do some Scrapply content because Scrapply all the things, obviously. The thing is, I had pretty much no time on my hands between having to work professionally, making content, and in my spare time, obviously, like a broken record, I was a university student, so that was taking up a ton of my time on the spare back end. So I really had no time. Just, if I had spare time, I didn't want to go and just sit down and start recording just to make some YouTube videos. But now I've got a lot more spare time. So I thought, you know what, hey, let's, this is a good time to start it. So I did a video on Scrapply about using the kind of asynchronous transport. That's on YouTube. Anyone, anyone want to check that out? And I also recently did one on Scrapply CFG with Nornier integration. So you can use it with just regular Scrapply async. I was going, I was actually going to demo that. But I thought, you know what, how about I kind of demonstrate the flexibility of Scrapply, how you can use and you can use it with Nordium and stuff. So that was that. I hopefully I'm going to make a few more videos on Scrapply. And then once I become less of a less of a donut when it with Go, I'm going to try to do a video on Scrapply Go. But for now, that's uh, that's off limits for now. I don't want to make a fool of myself. That's that's great. And I've been making a fool of myself with it. So you should just jump on it right on in, man. <laughs> that's great. Great stuff, John. I'm so proud of you because people really wanted to hear more of you on YouTube and complain. <laughs> so now they have that opportunity to, yeah. to post comments there. Well, that, that was the thing as well. Like I hadn't recorded on YouTube for a while and I hadn't even logged into the account. And I think I sent it to you, uh, Dimitri, in the chat. Like I logged in and the last three comments I had received was people like, uh, this looks like a good video, but I can't understand the word this guy says. I'm like, oh, he's <laughs> like, why am I even bothering making this free content? And people are just saying, don't understand this guy's accent. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to speak a little bit clearer and hopefully this mic's going to help that problem out. So fingers crossed. Well, hopefully. Nothing has been really going on in, with me these two weeks. I managed to fully disconnect from IT on the weekend. And I usually can do it. Like I will still read some Twitter or something and some articles, but this time I was completely disconnected. It felt so great. They really didn't want to come back to work on Monday, but yeah, that's pretty much it. So there is nothing, nothing interesting. Uh, Dave, what about you? Oh, wow. Um, I've got, I've got so many things to say also just to, uh, to, uh, you know, friendly Scottishman here. You should try putting subtitles on the videos that that might help. I've got the same problem because I'm from the Midlands and my South Derbyshire accent, when I normally go full on native South Derby, it's the same. Nobody can understand the blooming word I'm saying. So my end, I've not been doing a whole lot IT stuff, actually. I've been repairing a 70 year old tractor and kind of brazing and welding and all sorts of things. So, uh, it's kind of nice. I've been turning my hand to actually physical world stuff, which has given me a little bit more energy when I do kind of apply myself back to the kind of world of IT. And then, um, more recently we've had a, almost a three year project that's finally been released. We went through the legal cycles internally at Juniper, which is kind of cool. And, um, I think on a personal note, I've been doing a hell of a lot of uh, UI skilling up. So huge amount of time with React and pretty much my whole career, I've managed to avoid JavaScript 
and I've got to say, I've I've kind of gone through the the fires of pain to uh, to get reasonably proficient. And as for making a fool of myself, it's just like ah, I'm here. Whatever skill I've got now is is getting used. So uh, prepare for some terrible UIs before long. I think that's uh, probably from me for the time being. Well, I can definitely relate to this last piece that you said. I also find myself learning more JavaScript and using more JavaScript that I really want to, but I, it's not like I have a choice. Have you seen Swelt, by the way? Uh, no, I have okay. not. I would strongly encourage to check it out, though. It became my favorite, even though my JavaScript knowledge tends to zero. So could you tell us what's going on with Terraform and Juniper? Sure. Yeah, no problem. Bit of a long story. What I'll do is I'll, I'll start high and, uh, and come in quite low. So back in 2018, um, I had a conversation with a colleague internally and a friend. I mean, he won't mind me sharing his name. So a guy called Dmitry Kalintsev. And we got talking about infrastructure as code and kind of slightly different ways of, of doing things beyond Jinder 2 templates and generating configuration um, from, I guess, network engineer friendly and more from the kind of cloud world. Uh, and, and we couldn't really not talk about the topic without talking about templates. Terraform. Having spent some time from a kind of comp sci and academia side of things as well around kind of graph databases and graph structures, Terraform made a huge amount of sense. And it's I think it's just only grown in popularity from, you know, from the perspective of cloud. So we kind of started fantasizing and almost like, you know, role playing, nothing too kinky, but what it would be like if, you know, what if we could have Terraform providers for Junos and all the, the normal mental problems come up, but there's so many platforms and so many variants and software versions and, and so on and so forth. Let me pause you here for a second, because uh, it's sure. very possible that not everyone knows what Terraform is and what kind of typical problems that it solves. Could you also elaborate on that a little bit in the like cloud world, what it does? Sure. Yeah, no worries. So, okay, high I guess high-level introduction to Terraform. So it's an infrastructure as code tool. Um, it provides an abstraction layer uh, in terms of a language known as HCL or HashiCorp configuration language. And the idea is that you feed in key value pairs into a kind of declarative engine. So the idea is, um, I'm going to talk about some very cliche stuff, but say on a, on a switch, if you want a VLAN, instead of putting the configuration into a template and then rendering variables into interpolation, what you do is you call a module and then feed in um, say key, key value pairs via via this HCL language um, into uh, a file and then Terraform. What Terraform does, it renders a graph of dependencies. So for instance, with a, uh, a VLAN example, what you might have is a, an access port uh, attached to a VLAN. Obviously, then the VLAN is part of the configuration on the device and, and Terraform will actually build a tree of those dependencies and then render each of the respective pieces of configuration state ultimately that that results either in a set of api calls being uh, executed upon so whether that's rest or whether that's a, a text file like a like a blob of configuration terraform is extensible uh, via providers so that these are like similar to like plugins uh, and through the providers, we can do things like Terraform can drive AWS and Terraform can drive Azure. What what we found was, uh, say we, I'm talking about obviously the, the Juniper side of, of me here, was a lot of customers saying we're Terraform end-to-end. We run in this very kind of declarative way. We run in a very uh, immutable way. So we stand up whole environments and then blow them away. And what we don't really want to be doing is then go into a different tool to, to you know sort the network out, which was part of the original drive uh, for, for Terraform. Does that, does that help? It's a little bit different to the kind of imperative nature uh, of a lot of the tools out there. Sure, you could you could think of driving Ansible as almost declarative if you go high enough up the up the stack. But the the Terraform modules themselves, they don't really expose any ability for you to drive kind of Ginger two 
templating type approaches, although you could argue there's functionality in there. Um, so if you, oh, I can't remember what the hell it's called, but there's an, an ability to post in actual kind of you know configuration blobs after you've stood up a resource, for instance. But um, I, I want to just cover something off, actually, whilst I'm thinking about it, that there was a little bit of confusion over the use of Terraform. So Terraform is usually uh, used to um, stand up infrastructure. So if, if in, in terms of AWS, it might be go stand up an EC2 instance, copy some files across. And then other people would argue that um, there's a different tool or a different system that steps in to finish some of that configuration off. And the argument for us was we weren't looking at Terraform to actually stand up, say, a, a VSRX or any virtual resources, but actually model the configuration state on, on the platforms themselves. Okay, so kind of like what Ansible would do, right? What it would be used for changing configuration rather than spinning up the instances of virtual machines, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. In that sense, yeah, infrastructure as code usage from Terraform would match those particular tools. I think the, the interesting thing for me is Terraform is really a complete lifecycle management where a lot of opportunities and projects around infrastructure as code, they forget some stuff. So with Terraform, you get the ability, uh, the, the kind of full set of mutable verbs, um, so we can create and modify and delete. Um, and a lot of the times I've noticed when organizations embrace something like Ansible, they, they tend to worry about the, the kind of forward movements first. So they go, well, let's, let's do the configuration bit. And when it comes to deletions um, or even actually you know, placing configuration, it's kind of like a wipe what's there and replace. And um, the, the nice thing is with Terraform, we can actually deal with deltas as well, which is kind of interesting. Okay, so let me try to summarize Terraform in the cloud setting specifically. So let's say AWS and with Terraform, you can declare that, okay, I want this uh, VPC, I want these virtual machines, I want the networking be set up in such and such a way. And then when you run it, it will compare it to the state and will kind of like make infrastructure look like you desire to make it, well, take it to that state that you declared by using some API calls, maybe updating some resources or sometimes destroying some existing resources and spinning up the new resources. Is my understanding correct here yeah that, that's okay. um you worded it much nicer than i yeah so we, we, we can talk about it in, in terms of um regulation of state so you build a desired state and then the job of terraform is to turn your kind of external world and make it look like the one that you've described yeah and one other i think important piece is this notion of state which needs to be stored somewhere which could be local could be like a three bucket could be stored in terraform cloud but it also kind of means that well, if you touch your infrastructure in a way which is not safe in your Terraform state, then kind of weird things can happen and destruction of some some resources can happen. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And there are all sorts of more complicated issues around, you know, how does a, a large team that are all working on the same infrastructure, you know, how do they handle that? And you, you get to problems, you know, like um, state lock, where you have to place a, you know, kind of a, a, a set of state into um a little bit like uh, mutexes, I guess, and semaphores from you know from the software world. You have to lock the resources to make sure that nobody else will collide um, with you whilst you're making changes, which is an interesting one. So it can get quite complex on a larger scale, for sure. Mm -hmm. All right. So now that we established this baseline of what Terraform does and approximately how it does it, uh, let's move to the what Juniper has done on this front. What that Terraform provider actually does. Sure. Okay. Um, this, uh, I guess, is it's an area of contention and the reason it's contentious is because i think the details are often glossed over when it comes to building things so 
what we did, and I say we, the Royal We, very, very small kind of skunk work team or skunks work team even within uh, within Juniper. We came up with the proof of concept uh, and, and figured out the best way of getting Terraform to interact with Junos, which is naturally is through a provider. But the mechanics of that are really quite important. Bear in mind, Junos can deal with rollbacks and commits and configuration groups and all these other different things. So we, we figured out from a, from a kind of like a, a harmony level what to do and how to do it and how to deal with commits. So when the Terraform graph exits, first of all, I kind of looked at making uh, source code changes or literally a PR to the to Terraform to try and detect when the kind of graph computation was or graph computation phase from a Terraform plan was over. That didn't really go well. All the experiments failed. So what, what we did is we actually modeled some of the kind of Junos features into the, the base uh, requirements for a Junos provider. So for instance, a commit is actually a resource. So within HCL, you call resources into existence. You pass in these key value pairs, which are in the, in the kind of parlance of HCL um, into Terraform. Then Terraform, like I said earlier on, it creates like a, like a graph of, of dependencies and then um, calls API calls in the order of the, of the graph meeting dependencies as it traverses a tree. Um, so we, we kind of met some of the, the features of, of Junos by thinking about about how Terraform understands the inputs. And, and I guess I always call it adhesion, but it might not translate very well. But the biggest problem in the room, the big elephant in the room was the fact that Juniper's got quite a few platforms, uh, a huge amount of software versions to boot. So a Terraform provider, it wasn't ever going to work. We could make an arbitrary one, but then you know we'd always get complaints that feature X isn't working on platform Y. So I was keen to avoid that one. Uh, and what we actually started to do, despite requests to just start simple and you know build an arbitrary provider the plan and the proposal was to build a framework and the idea with a framework was it would consume yang models so platform and version specific yang models through some basic inputs you tell this this tool um, either what models or what kind of parts of a model that you need in the terraform provider and then this this kind of tool would go off and generate code which ultimately is is the resulting artifact it is the uh, the terraform provider and that's what we built with JTAF so we kind of engage the services of, of the engineering team internally they came up with the name so it's called JTAF or the Juniper Terraform Automation Project or oh, sorry Automation Framework I can't even get the, the name of it right that's terrible it's not a great start so the whole point of JTAF is you, you download it from GitHub um, the release, the first release certainly needs a little bit of work from a README perspective and um, just sort of some kind of accessibility and user friendliness needs a bit of polish. You feed it some information, uh, like I say, pertaining to the, uh, to the contents. So what model, uh, what contents of what model that you need in the, in the provider. And that directly relates to configuration. Um, so if you think about infrastructure as code and you think about an immutable deployment and, and how you want the network to look, you'll already know ahead of time um, kind of what content of the configuration you're going to need. And the idea is that you almost translate the configuration over into uh, Yang model requirements. You feed that set of requirements into this tool and then out pops the other end, this you know newly compiled auto-generated Terraform provider that is specific to your need. So instead of building a provider, we built a framework that automatically generates providers given the requirements that, that you feed in. Uh, and the idea then is you can build the providers to the platform you have, to the 
the version you have that includes just enough to get the job done. The surface area from an API perspective of Junos is incredibly large. And if we took every single Yang model and tried to put it into a provider, it's so large the Go compiler can't actually cope. And we, we meet all sorts of boundary problems when we, we try to do compilation as well. So uh, if you do try doing that, good luck, it, it won't work. But yeah, we've actually got a huge amount of API depth and breadth and way more out there than any other uh, I guess surface area coverage that any other Terraform provider provides. So if we take the AWS provider, one of the biggest and one of, I guess one of the one one of the best maintained. Anything we're likely to generate in Junos, if we try to go for high levels of coverage, it just trumps anything that um, Amazon has got. It's quite surreal, really, and it just shows you actually how much, from a network engineering perspective, you know how much knowledge and information we have to retain to do our jobs. And when we start looking at then the kind of cloud world, it makes the cloud look very simple in in comparison. So that's Super. in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, no, that's that's super cool. I was looking at the repo this morning when I saw a tweet about it, and I didn't quite grok it. I didn't have enough time to kind of look, but that that's really clear in my mind now, like what what the deal is. So, do you like basically say this model, this container? I care about these leaves, and then it auto generates. You know, obviously the provider, like you said, and does it like pop out a, like a you know pretty Terraform style docs and all that kind of good stuff too? Well, yeah, you just made me uh, severely disappointed. No, it, it won't generate the docs. What it will do, it will. You're absolutely right. So you think about it in terms of, of Yang models reliefs and then the various containers. You actually define those in a in a file in a kind of um, XPath expression style, which is then fed into into JTAF. So you feed JTAF the the models. You feed it the, the file with uh, XPath expressions and then it basically invokes a compilation. It writes some code basically. It's a two-stage uh, approach. Write some code then compiles it. Now things we've got missing today, um, the documentation, I'm just going to put my hands up here, is pretty poor. We've been fighting with the legal teams internally to get this released. I've got to write some proper tech docs. Automatic documentation isn't a feature today however i can share with this group that i've got a proof of concept swaggy ui that actually will generate you a json set of capabilities that the generated provider can handle and that was one of the reasons actually we went down this particular path of actually generating this from a you know from from a set of yang models because there are other uh junos kind of Terraform providers out there. And a lot of them have some very um, basic functionality or some very uh, expected functionality. But then everything else is done through kind of CLI scraping through kind of RPCs, which is which is interesting. It works, but it's not very specific. And from a machine-to-machine -machine perspective, if we start thinking a little bit wider in terms of, uh, let's say, consumption and usage of, of the providers, what we want to be able to do is we want one machine to extract a schema from the Terraform provider so it knows it can basically list functionality and the expectations from the provider so i mean i'll just try and describe this in a different way if we create a provider internally there are api calls for you know performing actions uh, against the model so i'm going to again use just use a very cliche thing so it's an interface and a vlan what we might see in there is data json data structure which shows you uh, the inputs to the provider and, and the kind of expectation whether you need to feed it a string or an int or a ball and i'm, I'm going to be working on a tool which will do two things one consume configuration and then give you the xpath expressions to make it even easier to generate those providers and part two of that then is to to automatically then give you a, a swagger environment with the content 
content directly from the generated Terraform provider. And I'm going to build that and put it into a Docker container. Um, so then you can remove any worries about sharing configuration uh, out of your organization. So there's two things where we're kind of working on in the background. Like I said, I've got proof of concepts of both of those working. It's really cool. Another question I, that kind of comes to mind for this is, I guess my assumption is you're kind of treating just like the service layer. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to word this in a way that is like cogent. I guess my what I'm trying to get at is you're not expecting people to manage like a whole box like this. I assume you're I assume you're you're thinking of using Terraform provider to layer on whatever security services or segment routing services or whatever that are associated to some app that's being deployed with Terraform. Or am I kind of off base with that? Absolutely, yeah, and I, I get where you're going with this. Actually, this, I've, I've done some soul searching over this. Um, in fact, there's there's been a weekly call for the last three years in terms of what people are likely to do with this and how they might think about it. Which is, I can't believe it's been going on for that long. But alas, that that's life. So, there's, if you wanted to manage the whole box with Terraform, there is nothing stopping you from doing that. But then the problem is, I always kind of look at this as almost like a um, uh, almost a configuration sourcing problem. So what you might have is a set of state files for the underlying, say, golden image, or the, let's say the, the deployment and the acceptable configuration for the deployment, which meets you know regulatory and compliance standards. But then you think about the services team. So if this is in a, an SP environment and they're you know adding customers to a to a PE, you don't want to be managing everything at the box level. You want to be adding services. Um, so there's nothing stopping anybody from managing state configuration in multiple instances of you know different providers because the idea is internally is where we can handle rooted configuration that, that's within the, the normal tree uh, what I mean by that is um, like configuration not in configuration groups or then the, the second mode is through through these configuration groups so if the content of a configuration group changes for instance Terraform the provider knows what to do and go back and can replace the entire contents of a, of a group so I guess my point there is um, think about it like adding macros uh, through terraform to handle things like services and you know kind of customer requirements to the box so you could you could manage all of the state through one set of state files if you so wanted to do that maybe for devices that don't change very much it makes sense or from a kind of a configuration sourcing perspective where you've got different teams adding state to a device there's nothing wrong with each of those teams having their own state for their own services and then maybe just doing some you know kind of get out of jail backups at the end of the day so you don't have to replay tons of state to get back to where you've you know where you've come from i think there's multiple ways of slicing and dicing that one it's an interesting set of um, approaches for sure yeah i, wanted... I think that makes sense for sure oh sorry go ahead dimitri i wanted to make sure that i understood everything correctly so i will try walking through this and correct me if i'm wrong somewhere so let's say i want to manage juno's some pieces of functionality let's say bgp right and we have typical BGP stuff, IS number, neighbor, networks that we want to announce, okay? So this stuff works on the Yang models. So I look at them, I see what kind of parameters are needed and I extract them with XPath and I say, okay, compile for now for me this Terraform provider where I care about BGP IS numbers, neighbors, and networks. Is it so far correct? Yep, so far you bang on the money. All right, so once that is done, now you can input those variables using a HCL, correct? Yep. Okay, and as a transport, we will be doing what? NetConfig to the device? Almost, yeah. So what it does, um, and yeah, you've <laughs> led me nicely into this one, or yeah, the other way around, I'm not really sure. It does that. So it opens NetConf, a NetConf session underneath, uh, and then passes through um, configuration codified in XML. 
Okay. And how does Terraform state come into play here? So what is being stored there and what is the consequence of people changing stuff outside of Terraform? Okay, so let's, um, first things I do, I guess I'll go over the block level if you can hold it. It's not exactly a complicated mental picture. So if we think about Terraform and HCL and Terraform state, the HCL key value pairs are transmitted into the Terraform provider. And then I'll go into the mechanics of that in a moment. And then within the Terraform provider, for instance, if we're going to create a BGP peer and we've got kind of neighbor AS and, you know, let's say an interface and, and whatever, and whatever parameters you can think of, there are data structures within the provider uh, in it's, it's all in Go. If you've ever, well, the same concept works for whatever programming language, but there is a struct of sorts which holds those kind of parameters that are derived from the Yang model. So as you send HCL key value pairs in through Terraform, Terraform opens an RPC channel via an internal gRPC connection into the provider. The provider accepts those key value pairs and then inserts them into instances of a struct derived from a Yang model. And then once you place a commit object and you do a Terraform kind of deploy, what will happen is a netconf session is opened up to the device, the configuration so that the instances of the data structures are rendered into XML and then the XML is transmitted over the netconf stream to the device and then actually a read is done straight back to make sure the management plane contains the configuration that you've just sent it. Now, if anybody fiddles with the local state and you say do a Terraform, um, you know, kind of do a Terraform plan, it'll tell you if the read it's just done via netconf and the data it's got in memory matches the local state. And then obviously you, you, know, you can you can force it to, um, you know, to reflect local state. And then if you, you know, you have a lot of problems with people fiddling around with local state or even remote state, then you need to come up with some kind of a strategy either on protecting local state or locking users out uh, of the devices themselves and this is a conversation that we've been having for years you know what's right you know do we block cli access well i think if you're on call out and the world's on fire you know engineers need to do what they need to do but then you probably always need to go back and then whatever changes you've made on the cli push it back into into terraform um, into hcl certainly and then rerun it just to make sure that local state reflects what you've you know the changes that you've made elsewhere i think that's a, a wider conversation out outside of terraform but hopefully that that makes sense so yeah. it's quite a simple model really for transport yeah it does all right dave i will ask you the last question and we will <laughs> move on to the another topic so from your perspective what types of users and use cases are you envision for this tool would it be correct assumption that it's more targeted to people already using terraform for whatever other needs they have or you have uh, something else in mind um Good question. Um, needless to say, there are a huge amount of, of Juniper customers that are Terraform houses through and through. They, they've kind of aligned against the HashiCorp ecosystem. And though for those customers, there is just a need for Terraform end-to-end. -end. So that one's a bit of a no-brainer. There's also a huge amount of interest um, from organizations that have ran aground with, with Ansible um, and, they're, and they're kind of exploring their options. Um, so there's kind of newcomers that are, that are looking at that. As for other angles, um, there have been some kind of pet projects internally which, which pick Terraform up and use it from a, from a programmatic point of view. Um, but I think what we're trying to do right now is just meet the need for you know for, for these Terraform modules to exist um, so um, teams can extend how they run and control and deploy their environments and extend it all the way down into the network. So not only deploying the infrastructure, but also kind of controlling the configuration using the same parlance and patterns that they're used to. So hopefully that answers that one for you, Dimitri.
Yeah, that's that's perfect. And the project sounds interesting. And Dave, I actually lied. I will ask another question here. What if people <laughs> want want to learn more about this, what they should look for in Google or how they can end up where they're supposed to end up to learn more about this? Yeah, sure. Okay. So this one's easy. So what you do is open PayPal up, you send me a you send me fifty dollars. I'm only joking, you don't send me any money. Go to github.com forward slash juniper forward slash junos hyphen terraform and that takes you to the to the JTAF project. On the README page you'll see some videos. I actually interview the, the main engineer that's been working on this and then he goes through some some usage videos. Just FYI, anybody who's kind of listening right now, the README is going to go through some changes. I'm I'm building tech docs and, and like I say working on some user friendly tools as well to make the whole experience easier. Uh, and I just want to say Dimitri thank you for for having me on this i mean like i say i put a tweet out a few hours ago now and um, for me this has been a quite a big deal internally in you know within juniper this has been a long-term project that's been dragging its heels so i've been quite nervous about coming to the world and saying hey this is this is out there now and thank you for having me on this this has been a, a delight so thanks gents it's been uh, really interesting and thanks for having me thanks a lot dave that was very interesting let me read this question from their master maybe a discussion on the long-term career path for network automation 10-15 years, maybe more down the line. In one of my videos, I mentioned that CS programmer might build better systems than network engineer. So what is the scope for a person doing network automation? What do you guys think about network engineer in like 10 to 15 years, 10-15 years down the line? What kind of scope of their work will be from your opinion? Carl, I will just put you on the spot here. Dang, I was waiting. I, I knew it was going to happen. I think the the fundamentals and stuff are never going to go out of style or, or never going to not be useful. I still think that a little bit of literacy in kind of software side of things is good, but I don't think, I still pretty strongly think that not all people need to go hard into Python or Go or, or whatever language or languages. So I think a little bit of fluency, a little bit of literacy, there's like just so much stuff and it, there's always going to be more stuff and it's you know, there's enough change and churn and network stuff that I think you can kind of stay in that world. And as long as you get a little bit of literacy and the other stuff to kind of keep keep going, I think you'll be fine. And I think if, if you want to go hard into software development side of things, I think that's also a, like a viable path. But I, I just don't think it's the only one, if that hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, it does. John? Yeah, I would kind of echo what Carol said. I don't think that everyone has to be some kind of developer. I think you can definitely be a network engineer. Although if you had to ask me or if you had to place a bet and say, where is the brighter future? I definitely do think going the software route is you're probably going to have more doors open for you. I think the traditional engineer of you know managing VLANs, that's really going to become more and more limited. But again, don't just do that because you feel like you have to. If you want, if you really do enjoy networking, then you should learn networking and learn it well. That's the secret to having a good career is to be good at whatever you do. So, I mean, if you can, I think, because I do believe, as Carol says, networking is not going away. You're still going to have the need for networks of people who know how networking really does work. So I do think it's important to to know that stuff well. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard. It's too hard to predict the future. I would be totally lying if I say I had any kind of clear path. My general perspective, I do think developers have probably got more options available to them going forward. But I do think networking is still going to be there. I mean, as far as your job as a network engineer, I do think what Carol said is correct. 
I do think some type of literacy, you know, understand structured data, understand how you work with JSON, some pretty simple stuff. You don't need to worry about trying to build the next Scrapple. I mean, if you can just learn how to work with structured data and understand the type of structured data you're coming back, you could do a hell of a lot. Same with just understanding basic Python concepts, working with dictionaries, working with lists, working with loops and stuff and conditional statements these are still pretty introductory level fundamentals you don't need to go too hard in development stuff like that i think would serve you well but as far as a full-time career i don't think it's possible to be a really strong network architect and a really strong developer at the same time so i think you've got to pick your path and i think the best path to pick is your passion although if you're kind of in between and just want to roll the dice you probably have more what you say options available to you in the future going maybe down towards cloud and development as opposed to traditional rackham stackham vlan management i don't know what you think dimitri so regarding the scope of network automation engineer in like 10 to 15 years i feel like they will be just building network automation systems which integrate with the rest of applications or some internal systems i do feel like the most successful network automation engineers will be previously network engineers who decided to go full on on cs and programming mainly because the network automation in my view is so specific and also network infrastructure is so critical that you do need some kind of background knowledge on how it works in order to automate it properly and i also don't see a lot of excitement in pure software developers going into this field and then being being asked of learning some of this networking stuff that they might need to know if they want to automate that. So like, that's what I think. But yeah, it's really hard to predict. I guess we'll see. Dave, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, I've got a few. I mean, much echoing, I think, what everybody else has said so far. I mean, what, what's always amazed me is, I mean, I've, I've spent most of my career either writing software or around software developers as well as you know kind of being a network and at various points in my career I've, I've always been better at one than the other i've never met uh, i've never kind of balanced where i've been good at networking and good at software i've either been good at one or the other and then something's faded into the background i think that, that's you know probably worth saying but what's always struck me is software engineers and you know, software developers focusing on solving a problem rarely have in-depth knowledge about the network um, and i think having that in-depth network knowledge you're always going to be in demand especially in kind of complex environments and let's face it everything is getting more complex as more you know kind of applications and systems move over to the cloud and then people start looking at optimizing for cost or for availability or for mobility or whatever i think the network would plays an ever more critical role and that probably changes because there's less boxes being sold and more you know i think more layers being added but the ability to understand dissect and figure out how you know, things connect to each other, what manages the sessions, how to maintain that sense of availability. I don't think it's ever going to go anywhere. You know, how we achieve that will probably change and the tools around it might change. But um, systems are getting more complicated. Things are de-aggregating. They're not getting easier. Um, and software developers certainly, don't, you know, the, the more simple they want it, the harder it gets on the network and, and how to glue these things together. So I think the future is bright, but 10, 15 years is a long way out. But it's, it's an interesting set of thoughts. That's one where you, where you sit down with a smoking jacket, I think, and have a whiskey and figure the future out. But it's nice. It's a good question. Thank you, Dave. All right. For now, we have John Capabianco. Hey, John, you told me that you wanted to share something about your project. Please, the stage is yours. Well, thank you. And um, 
speaking of the stage, this is I've been following this for like a month, six weeks now, and uh, I rabidly consume all three of you and Dave, soon to be four of you, all of your content, all of your tweets, all your videos. So you have an audience, and this is to me, this is like being with the Justice League of network automation. So, so I'm a little intimidated to. <laughs> to talk about my network automation open source project. But um, I, Dimitri, I'm like you with Ansible in terms of how I feel about the project. And um, at my enterprise, um, I had come up with some, solution, some solutions. It's too bad Clay isn't in the audience. But I plugged in some of his parsers into Ansible, and I was turning in um, network state information into business-ready documents, is what we call them. So like a CSV file and a markdown file and an HTML web page. And um, we've got to the point now where these PyATS jobs, I've moved from Ansible into pure Python with PyATS, um, they, they run, say, show IP interface brief. But it, use your imagination, right? This could be anything that they can parse. And I use Jinja2 templates to render you know, a nice CSV file of our routing tables or of our interfaces. And, and I'm you know, using APIs and stuff. We're sending them to a SharePoint document library. So none of my business side of the house has to know about Git or cloning or repos or VS Code, right? They just go to their, they're happy to go to a SharePoint link and consume it as a, a spreadsheet, right? Something like an inventory report from show inventory or show version or lots of different things, right? So this is more just to make an open invitation. It really is an open source thing. Uh, I'm not an authority on any of this. I, I just, you know, if, if you're looking for somewhere to, write some PyETS, write some Python, write some HTML, whatever you want to get involved with. There, there is, my project is available and I'm, you know, I'm accepting pull requests and stuff. I just moved it into um, uh, Kubernetes microservices, I guess is sort of what I think of it. So now that show IP interface brief, which makes those files, it's running as a Kubernetes pod that I reset every minute. So now nobody has to go to any CLI or anything to get that information. It's in an HTML web page, so they just go to device name dot IP interface brief dot you know parl dot gc dot ca or whatever my domain name is, and it brings them to a living, breathing, up to the minute HTML version of the show command that they would normally CLI and have to what log into Putty and bring it into Notepad, and that's those days are behind us, right? So now it's it's really like a microservice living in the cloud as a Kubernetes pod. Okay, John. So if people would like to know more about this and potentially contribute to this, where would you advise them to go to get familiar with the project and where are the code is stored? Yeah, no, that's great. It's on, um, I have lots of repositories under Automate Your Network on GitHub. Uh, these particular repos are under Merlin. So there's a base Merlin, which is like PyETS at the CLI. There's a Docker version and a Kubernetes version. And um, yeah, I, the readmes are pretty well documented. And I have videos and other things. If people really want to get involved, I can, I can really help them out. And, and I, you know, send me an instant message on Twitter. I'm very responsive. Uh, I really want to um, help people use this stuff. It, I, you know, I don't know about you guys, but the greatest satisfaction I get out of this is getting messages like, hey, I just ran your code and I have the CSV file. Is it ever great? I don't know, Carl or, or John, about your videos or your content. Is it, is it right? That's the satisfaction that I'm really getting out of it is, is helping the community embrace automation. That's the same thing that I kind of get, John. If I get good positive feedback, somebody says, look, maybe 
some type of video, maybe helped them uncover some type of new tool or maybe some video I created helped them pass an exam. That is the best type of feedback for sure. If only there were subtitles though. <laughs> well, that's what we need for sure. Automatic subtitles is what we need. That's the next automation that needs to happen. Well, I, I appreciate the, the little plug and the little opportunity to talk, to talk about the project. And um, there's lots of ways to get involved. And uh, it's really neat. It's really fun stuff to now, you know, and, and you know, I say show IP interface brief. I have everything like a BGP table turned into a CSV file you can sort and search and find. I, I think of it as democratizing the network state information where, you know, you don't need to be a CCNA to read the output and um you know as as little cli as we can do as possible with all these wonderful new tools at our fingertips i you know to that next 10 or 15 years i don't want to be a pessimist about the cli but i think its days are numbered i think that the rest api has come to our platforms you know web 2.0 changed everything in the 2000s with salesforce and stuff i think we're going through that revolution right now of infrastructure 2.0 or whatever you want to call it yeah, I, I think there is a lot of changes going on right now, and I'm very curious to see where this whole network automation journey, how it will mature over the course of the next couple of years, or maybe the course of 10 years. It's really interesting, a lot is changing right now, but we also do like a lot of tooling on some of the programmatic interfaces, so we'll see. The future will be interesting in this area. Right, John, thank you so much for joining us and telling us a little bit more about your project. And we are coming here to the close. So I would like to ask our panel here about some final wisdom. And Carl, I will put you on the spot again. Yeah, I already forgot what it was supposed to be. Uh, uh, I think it was consistency, right? Always be consistent. Consistent configs, easier to automate, consistently write tests. There we go, plugged it back into tests so now I feel good. That's all I got, man. You recovered nicely. John? I have no wisdom today. My brain's a little bit fried, so you're not going to get much wisdom from me. I just want to thank John for coming on and Dave for coming on. I learned a lot from what Dave was saying. I've really been a bit an education, this one, for me. So yeah, if Dave wants to come back on, he's more than welcome anytime, for sure. That was great. You're just saying this because you speak similarly. I think this is the main reason why, isn't it, John? I need some type of solidarity somewhere, so there you go. Yeah. You just want to have a consensus on the panel. All right, Dave, uh, what is your final wisdom for today? Well, I don't have much to share. I'm not that clever. I just uh, I learned a lesson today. I've, uh, I drank four coffees before lunch and really didn't feel great around lunchtime, so maybe don't do that. <laughs> All right, thanks. And John Capabianco. That was evergreen. <laughs> do you have any final wisdom for us to share? Well, sure. I So it's called Merlin because of Clark's third law. And I think we maybe, you know, the grind gets to us. But really remember how magical the stuff that we're working with is, right? It's indistinguishable from magic because it's so advanced. So really, I, you know, be happy and enjoy what you do. Because, you know, you could be digging a ditch somewhere instead of writing a Python script, right? So I, I just think we should keep that passion and that excitement about what we do alive. And this group really brings that out. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Dave and John, for joining us today and sharing some of the stuff you have been working working with. It's great. I learned a ton today. My final wisdom for today would be take a break when you need it. That is very helpful. This IT is just this constant hamster wheel that never ends. 
<laughs> so sometimes it's it's good to take your time, stop learning and just, just relax and spend time on yourself. All right. Again, thank you so much to everyone. Thanks to our guests today. This has been another episode of Network Automation Hangout, a bi-weekly audio discussion about network automation with the community. Uh, we are recording on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Central European time, 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And join us to talk about network automation. Thank you so much. And until the next time, goodbye.